Well, peace be with you. So today we continue with our series called uh, The Beginning is Nigh, and here's why it's called that. Uh, really, we're going through First and Second Thessalonians, and really a major theme here is the return of uh, Jesus. And so sometimes when you hear about the end of the world, the apocalypse, and these types of things, you'll see people, you know, standing outside a courthouse or a government building or something, or maybe in a movie, and they've got a placard saying, the end is nigh. And the idea, the meaning with that is that, okay, there's, there's an end to human history that is coming up as we have understood it to be. And, right, there's Jesus is going to return as judge and as savior, and he will judge all wickedness and evil. And so the emphasis with a sign like that is on the end, and I get it, and that's real, and that's a part of it. But the reason this is called the beginning is nigh is to bring something else to the forefront about the return of Jesus, which is that, yes, he will come and he will judge evil and wickedness, but at the same time, he comes as Savior, and he comes to usher in a new reality that the New Testament calls the new heavens and the new earth. And so every tear will be wiped from every eye. It'll be so wonderful. God's creation, humanity, will be restored to how it was originally intended to be. And so there's also a hope-filled beginning. I was at the back of the sanctuary probably a month and a half ago, and I was talking to Warren. And uh, Warren said, you could have called this series, uh, uh, The End is the Beginning. And I thought, oh, that's, that's a clever way to think about it, too, if you kind of move the words around. So the idea is we're bringing back into the forefront, as we look at First and Second Thessalonians, the idea of some sort of hope-filled beginning. Now, as we go through these two letters, what we find is the Apostle Paul is not only talking about what the return of Jesus is going to be like, some of the details about what is going to happen, but he's also telling us how we are supposed to live in the lead-up to him coming. So he's giving instructions. Oh, you are to be holy. Oh, you are to be prepared because it could come at any moment. You are to be loving. And so he's giving us instructions not only about what will happen, but about how we are to live. And so today we come to the very last section of text in 1 Thessalonians 5, and he gives a bunch of instructions. But as we approach that text, I want to frame it and remind us about the bigger picture that Jesus has elsewhere said and reminded us of about what will happen, what things will be like in the world in the lead up to his coming, okay? And so this needs to kind of be in the back of our minds. We're, we're thinking not only about what Paul has said, but what Jesus has said. So consider some of these things. This is some of the reality that's going to be in the world right in the immediate lead up to the return of Jesus. And this is from Jesus' own mouth in Matthew chapter 24. There will be wars and rumors of war. There will be false messiahs. There will be increased Christian persecution. There will be an increase in lawlessness. Now, what is meant by lawlessness? Does it mean people are going to speed on the 401 and cheat on their taxes? Maybe. But really, the idea here is lawlessness going against God's laws. So more and more people will be going against the laws and ways and teachings of God. And, Jesus says, the love of most will grow cold. And so think of that chilling reality for a second. The love of most people in the wider world is going to grow cold. It's going to be a less loving place, not a more loving place. So part of the implication for God's people is that genuine Christians will be living in the lead up to Jesus' return in a reality and in an environment which is increasingly hostile and which is increasingly unloving. And so in light of that, Paul is saying you need to live in a certain way. You're not going to be sucked into all of that. You are going to be people of holiness, which means being set apart for a special godly purpose. You are going to be a people who are distinct. You are going to be a people who are loving. And then today he also says something that we often 
forget is actually a part of this behavior that we are supposed to have and lead up to the return of Jesus. And here it is. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. Now this is, if there's the greatest hits of quotes from the Apostle Paul, this would definitely be on the playlist. It's popular on Christian social media. Churches put it on their signs. We have it underlined in our Bibles. And what we forget sometimes is that actually these are things that we are supposed to do in the midst of a culture which will be increasingly hostile and increased of a time which will be less loving. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. And as we go through the text today, what we are going to discover is actually is that these types of activities serve as invisible stabilizers for the coming storm. Invisible stabilizers for the coming storm. And we're going to think about, wait a second, what does this mean? What's going to be going on in the world? How are we counseled to live? How are we to have certain activities and a posture and attitudes that serve as stabilizing factors for the coming storm uh, as Christians? And so that's what we're going to explore uh, today. And to do so, we're going to open our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians uh, 5. So if you've got your Bible, that's great. We'll put the words up on the screen as well. And just to get us up to speed, because I wasn't here last week, um, in the immediate section of text, Paul was talking about Jesus is going to come like a thief in the night, which means there's going to be an element of surprise. Uh, he talked about um, we need to be children of the day and children of light, not of the night nor of darkness. And he also said to encourage one another, because things are, are, are going to be difficult sometimes, and so we need, as the body of Christ, to be encouraging one another. And so then we get into verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. So here he's most likely talking about pastors and elders, and sometimes preachers skip over this sort of thing because we don't want to make it sound like we're special. Um, But the idea here is it's connected to peace in the church. Be at peace among yourselves. So one of the things we find is that when people uh, show uh, proper respect for people in authority over them in the church, it usually contributes to the unity and peace of the church. Um, It actually says to esteem them very highly. One of the things I want to highlight is that people like myself have a formal title of reverend. Ever wondered why that is? Um, Is it because I'm more special than anybody else? No, it's not. It's because of my office, the office I represent. I represent the office of Christ as I seek to serve him. So that's why that is there. Now, there's a little side note I want to put here. Whenever there is leadership which is abusive or harmful or unbiblical, that's a separate category and it needs to be dealt with. But Paul's assumption here is in a biblical, healthy model of a church, we need to be respecting those who have spiritual authority. Continuing verse 14, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idol. Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Okay, so he's, he's starting to kind of list kind of some rapid-fire things. He's bringing the letter to the close. Do this, oh, do this, and don't forget this, and don't forget that. And here he's listing a whole group of people, and whenever these people are named in the Bible, it's because they're not to be avoided, they're to be supported and helped. And so are we identifying people who fall into these categories, and are we doing our best to practically help them? Verse 15, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. And again, as always, Paul's teachings reflects the teachings of Jesus, Sermon on the Mount. Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Turn the other cheek, right? So Paul is expressing similar things here. And then we get into uh, these very famous verses, 16, 17, 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, 
and give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So we're going to spend a few minutes on these central verses. So the first thing I want to highlight is that Paul sometimes specifically says what God's will is for them. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, he's already said to them, God's will for you is sanctification or holiness, your set-apartness in God for his special purposes in the world. Here he says something else. This is the will of God for you in Christ. Now, what we need to know about how this sentence is constructed is it's not just connected to the thanksgiving of verse 18, it's connected to the praying without ceasing in verse 17 and the rejoicing always in verse 16. So it's not just that giving thanks is God's will for them, God's will for them is doing all three things. These are kind of bunched together as a very powerful uh, triple punch here. So let's look at them one at a one, one at a time. First of all, rejoice always. The first question we need to ask is, really? Really, rejoice always. You can't manufacture joy uh, if we're thinking about it in a certain way. Uh, Rejoice when someone I care about is sick. Rejoice when I lose my job. Rejoice when there's war. So at this point, to really get at what Paul is saying, we need to know what he is saying. Okay, so as we've talked about before, joy is different than happiness. Right? Happiness is connected to your circumstances. It comes and goes. Something good happens. I'm, I'm happy. Something bad happens. I'm sad. It's like a roller coaster. But joy is more permanent than that. Joy is more bedrock stuff. Joy is trusting in a God who is good, loving, wise, and that he will provide for you through the ups and downs of life. If we are rooted in that reality, in that truth, then we're more likely to be joyful even if and sometimes when we are unhappy. I have a deep and abiding joy because I trust that regardless of my circumstances and regardless of what is going on in the world, I am trusting in a God who is good, wise, he is loving, and that he is providing for me through the ups and downs of life. And so that's really what we're talking about when it comes to joy. And Paul's not saying this from an ivory tower, okay? He's he's not someone who's just an academic somewhere saying, oh, this is a good idea to do this. The guy demonstrates this through the hardships of his own life. Paul uh, is beaten, he's thrown in prison, he experiences the 40 lashes minus one, he experiences shipwreck, all those things, and he is saying, rejoice always. Next category, pray without ceasing. Now, here we have to wonder, is this literal? Or is he being hyperbolic? Is he, is he exaggerating for effect? I think the, here the idea is a consistency, right? Because I don't think it's possible to pray without ceasing all that. I don't pray when I'm sleeping. I don't pray when I'm plunging the toilet. You know, maybe I should, but you know, you don't pray all the time, right? But the idea here is, is prayer will be so consistent that it will be natural to us. Oswald Chambers was a uh, very famous writer. He wrote a devotional book, kind of a world-renowned devotional book called His Utmost for My Highest. He says this about this very verse. Next slide. Prayer should be like the breath in our lungs and the blood from our hearts. Our blood flows and our breathing continues without ceasing. We're not even conscious of it, but it never stops. I love that. So I think there is something. It should become so natural that it just flows through us like the blood flows through Our veins. Is there something about that in there? Okay, what about give thanks in all circumstances? Next, verse 18. And again, we have to wonder, uh, really? Are we really to give thanks in all circumstances? I can see how we want to give thanks in some circumstances. What about all of them? So what we're going to do now is I want to oppress you in light of who we know God to be 
that he is good, loving, true, that he is providing for us through the ups and downs of life, even when things are difficult, that he is always God, the same yesterday, today, and forever, that God's promises never fail, that we can find things to be thankful for, even in the midst of difficult situations. And we trust what Paul says elsewhere in Romans 8, 28, that all things work for the good for those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And I'm going to give you an example. Some of you will know of Corey Tenboom, who... Um, she's a, a famous speaker and a famous writer, very, a very devout woman. Um, but her family sheltered many Jews who were fleeing the Nazis uh, in the World War II. And so she tells this story. The Nazi police seized her and her sister, Betsy, and their father, and they ended up, because they were sheltering Jews, they ended up in a concentration camp, all the while holding firmly to their faith. One day, they moved to a location called Barracks 28. The sewers were backed up, the mattresses were soaked with urine. And when they went to bed, they got bitten because the beds were swarming with fleas. In a near panic, she and her sister Betsy, they wondered what to do. But Betsy, remember, wait a second, God has already reminded us about what to do because this very morning in our devotionals, we were reading 1 Thessalonians 5. Give thanks in all circumstances. Let's make a list. And so they were thankful that they hadn't been separated they were thankful that their Bibles were not seized. They were thankful that they were crammed together with so many other women so they would be able to minister to them and help them through their own difficulty. Betsy suggested then that they should even be thankful for the fleas. Corey was like, I don't know. Give thanks in all circumstances, not just the nice ones. And so... She did it anyway. And as time went on, they realized, wait a second, we have a lot of freedom in Barracks 28. So they started, actually, in the Barracks, a worship service. Then a second service. People were hearing the eternal message and hope about Jesus. People who hadn't heard it before. People were being encouraged in the midst of what we might call a hellish experience. And then one day, they realized why they had such incredible freedoms to do these things. It was because of the fleas. The guards didn't want to walk into those rancid conditions, and so they kept their distance and gave them a freedom to do certain things, a freedom that they would not have otherwise had. And so upon this, upon learning this, Corey remembered their prayer of thanksgiving in all circumstances. And so this is difficult stuff, but I'm just saying this because I think we need to be pushed sometimes. Even in the midst of adversity, what is God doing? What good is God working even out of difficulty? Pray in all circumstances. It's human to be thankful when times are good. It's discipleship to be thankful when times are tough. It's human to be thankful when times are good. It's discipleship to be thankful when times are tough. All right, continuing, verse 19. Do not quench the spirit, Paul writes. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Now, what's going on here? My sense here, we don't totally know, but do not quench the spirit means do not quench the work of the Holy Spirit in their midst. My sense, um, based on my research, is probably what's going on is this. There are people there that are really looking for the return of Jesus. Some people are using the spiritual gift called prophecy in the New Testament, where some people have this gift where they can receive a divine utterance from God and they share it with the group for their benefit or to encourage them. And so my sense here is some people are doing that maybe around the details about Jesus' return. This makes other people uncomfortable, and so they're saying, cut it out. This problem has been reported to Paul. 
he says, hold on a second, uh, don't quench the spirit, but test everything. So you can't just believe everything that everyone says. Is it consistent with the Bible? Is it for the good of everybody? If so, listen. If not, maybe the person is mistaken. I think that's what's going on here. Then in verse 22, abstain from every form of evil. You think that's obvious, but he throws it in there for good measure. Verse 23, and here comes the crescendo, his closing remarks in the letter. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely means make you holy. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I'll tell you that sounds weird, but really it's just an ancient greeting, kiss on the cheek. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. Recall that it's a highly illiterate culture, so it needs to be read for people to hear the message. And then verse 28, he ends with a word of grace the same way he started it in chapter 1, verse 1. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And so that ends the letter. Now, it's really interesting. He's talked about amazing stuff. And, and if you haven't heard it before, some strange stuff about the return of Jesus. And so they're going to like send more messages back to him. We want to know more about this return of Jesus. And so the next letter includes details. He will talk about judgment. He will talk about a rebellion and uh, the appearance of a man of lawlessness who needs to appear before the return of Jesus. Um, but they have to wait for the next letter, and so do we. But we end our close look at the text there for today. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, so earlier I mentioned that we would return to those all-famous verses to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. And here is what I want to point it out. It has to do with getting invisible stabilizers in your life for the coming storm. Invisible stabilizers in your life for the coming storm. And to help us look at this, what I'm going to do is I'm going to encourage us to look at what Jesus' own prayer life was like. Ever wonder, what, what is Jesus' own practice of, of prayer? What was his devotional life like? We know what he taught about prayer. He taught the Lord's Prayer. Matthew 6, he taught about a bunch of other stuff about prayer in John, John's gospel, other places. But what was his personal practice? So there's a, a German theologian, Joachim uh, Jeremias, who's got a book about these things. And he's got a chapter about what the prayer life and devotional life was for devout Jews in the first century at this point in history. And it's really, really fascinating because this is going to actually form some of the background, the context for, for where we're going to go with this text, okay? So I'm going to picture it visually on the screen, as you can see, and I'm going to explain it to you. So devout Jews in the first century, and we know from the Bible that Jesus was raised in a devout household. And so this pattern of life would have been taught to uh, at least boys beginning from the time they were 12 and above. In the morning, they would have woken up and they would have said the Shema. Now, Shema is the Hebrew word for hear. And so they're reciting a section from Deuteronomy 6, which when I say it, you will you know, recognize it because it has come to us today as Christians as a part of the great command. Hear, O Israel. Um, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And so this is the fundamental creed of, of the Jewish people. And they would get up and they would say that. And then they would say something called the Amidah or the standing prayer, sometimes called the 18 benedictions. These are 18 prayers. And then they would add other prayers to them as they saw fit. Then at 3 p.m., they would again say the Amidah or the 18 benedictions. They would go through them, then add other prayers. Now, why 3 p.m.? That's when all the sacrifices were going on in the Jerusalem temple. And so even if you're not in Jerusalem... You'd be scattered all over the place, but you've got this kinship with your fellow believers because you are praying together, in a sense. 
And then at night, they would again say the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is, is good. You shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And then they'd pray the 18 benedictions again, presumably at night. And then at worship in the synagogue, they would pray, they would sing, they would study the scripture. And what we do on Sunday is very much patterned on those synagogue services. Now, here's what we need to point out. This practice facilitates what Paul says to do in verses 16, 17, and 18. If you live like this, there's no way, back one, there's no way that you can't rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances. And here's why. You're actually reciting the scripture, and then you're praying as soon as you get up. Then you were saying the Amidah, you're, you're praying yet again in the middle of the day. And then you're reciting scripture at night, you're praying again and other things, and then you're worshiping, you're singing, you're giving thanks, you're studying the scripture with God's people each and every day. You can't not do it. And so Jeremiah's case, what he argues quite persuasively, I think, is when Paul is saying to pray without ceasing and to do all these things, he's saying, hey, in effect, you Thessalonians, keep following these patterned structures of prayers that have been handed on to us from our ancestors because in the coming storm, they will serve as invisible stabilizers. They will be your roots that will ground you in the realities of God regardless of what you're dealing with. It facilitates it. Now, as we look at a passage like this, we need to know that we don't have to follow that pattern, right? We are not prescribed this exact pattern in the New Testament. And so there's a certain freedom we have. However, the thing is we need to be proactive. We need to be consistent. If we are not consistent, if we are not proactive, we just feel guilty about this stuff because we feel like, I'm not doing that. And so here's today's question. What are your stability structures for the coming storm? Next slide. What are your stability structures for the coming storm? Remember what I described from Matthew 24 that Jesus said in the lead up to his return? Things are going to be challenging in a variety of ways. Don't be all bad things. There'll be many good things. But we are called in the midst of that situation to live in holiness, to live in love, to be the light of Jesus, to be salt and light, and to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, to give thanks in all circumstances. If we are not doing these sorts of things, we will not have the stability structures to stand firm in that coming storm. So what are your stability structures? And I just want to highlight a few things that the Bible gives us to be those structures that we need to be consistent in. The first is daily prayer. These are some of the basics that you know about it. Daily prayer, pray without ceasing. It doesn't mean to pray all the time, 24 hours a day, but do you have specific times where you pray? Jesus did, Paul did, the early church did, do we? Second one, Bible reading. I've always said that Christians need to be reading their Bible every single day. Maybe an exception is Sunday because you're coming here and we're going through the text together. Every single day. And when that happens, you're rejoicing because you see what the promises of God are. You are praying because you're also praying. And you're going to give thanks because of the goodness that God is doing in your life. Jesus did it. Paul did it. The early church did it. Are we doing it? Next, grace at meals. I think grace at meals is an invisible stability structure. Even in that small moment, not just one meal, not just special occasions, every time you sit down at the table, you're rejoicing because God has provided for you and what's before you. You are praying because you are actually praying. You're giving thanks for what he has done for you. Here's another one, weekly worship. Weekly worship. Here's the thing, <clears throat> if we want to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, when you come to a worship service, you do all those things regardless of how you feel. You could be in a crummy mood. You just got to show up. 
Other people will facilitate all the stuff, the learning, the rejoicing, the singing, the prayers, the scriptures, everything else. You can't not do it if you show up. And so what are your stability structures for the coming storm? And it might look different for you. I think these are the main ones. Uh, some people have different ones based on different um, approaches, different personalities. For example, I love which, what I call situational recitation. And so there's certain times in my day that I think, oh, this fits perfectly with a scripture. And so every time I do a certain thing, I'm going to say that scripture, and it roots me in the realities of God. I get up out of bed in the morning, and I say, stand up and give praise to the Lord our God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Nehemiah 9, verse 5. It roots me in the realities of God as soon as I get out of bed. I leave the house, and the Lord bless your going and your coming from this day forth and forevermore. I say the same thing when I come home as well from out in the world. Psalm 121, verse 8. Maybe there's some scriptures that you say, and they kind of are situationally recited as you go about your day. <clears throat> so the point is simply for you to reflect upon this week in your homes, around your tables, in your groups. What are your stability structures for the coming storm? <clears throat> Closing thought on this text. Um, when I was growing up, uh, our house was out in the country. We heated it uh, based on wood heat. You know, my dad would go back and cut down wood and have a tractor with a big wagon and pull it out and we'd stack it by the house and burn it all winter long. And so my friend Chad was over and uh, we were going to go in the wagon. It's fun to ride in the wagon when dad's in the tractor. So we got there, went back and we were bringing a load back and we we're going up this hill and the wheels started to turn because it had rained and it was a bit muddy. <clears throat> and um, my dad started talking about the needs for chains on the tires. My friend Chad said, yeah, that would help with the gription. <clears throat> and I was like, Chad, that's not a word. And he's like, I think it's a word. I'm like, I'm not sure it is. But I'm still not sure if it is or isn't a real word. But the idea is it's grip and traction put together. Grip and traction put together. What we are talking about today with these stability structures for the coming storm are soul gription. Soul gription. So that... As these things happen in the world, as we come up to the return of Jesus, whether it's tomorrow, 10 years, or 1,000, we don't know, they will ensure that you will act like a child of the light and a child of the day so that you can rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Amen.